This is not Randy Nelson's theme of the month or, you know, based because I'm successful as an entrepreneur, I have it all figured out. Uh-uh. These are based around the things that everybody's going to have to know and do for the next 10, 15, 20, 50 years. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 32 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Randy Nelson, who's the CEO of Gold Dolphins LLC and the author of The Second Decision, The Qualified Entrepreneur. Randy and I spent a majority of the time discussing his book. The one question that I was curious about was, why did he title his entrepreneurship book The Second Decision? And he replied that an entrepreneur's first decision is the day you start your company. The second decision, as he states in the book, is the choice you make when you fully realize the responsibility that rests on your shoulders. Now, Randy earned his BS in accounting from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and he uses that accounting knowledge as part of his success in growing organizations. Randy has laid out a wonderful map that will help you become a qualified entrepreneur in your business. At the end of each chapter, Randy tries to hold you accountable to this journey of becoming the qualified entrepreneur by having you track your progress through his call card. Call card has a list of action statements that you need to check off and sign and date. Accountability. Well, there's the teaser to our interview, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. As you know, one of my goals with this podcast is that I'll help you begin to make changes in your work and personal lives so you can better connect with others and create meaningful business relationships. Many people have said that it takes 21 days to start a habit, but a lifetime to keep that pattern. That is why I created the Yes and Challenge to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscle. That's right, your improvisational muscle. To sign up, please go to petermargaritas.com and scroll down to the SN Challenge call to action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of yes and and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge. Now, if you're unaware of what the Yes and Challenge is all about, I discussed this in detail in episode zero, so go back and take a listen. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Along with, you can purchase my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership in Life on Amazon. It's available in paperback and on Kindle. So with that said, let's get to the interview with Randy Nelson. Hey, I'm uh, with Randy Nelson today, and Randy is the author of The Second Decision, The Qualified Entrepreneur. Randy has his forward written by General Hugh Shelton, 14th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So first and foremost, that's very impressive. Second, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, Randy, to spend some time with me on my podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. 
I, I appreciate your time. Oh, I, I've got, I, I love doing this. I, I, I love having this conversation. And, and Randy and I met, we're probably going a little over a year or so ago at uh, Advantage Media. We both had our books published by Advantage Media and, and that's where we crossed paths. And his book, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the second decision was the number one book in 2015 at Advantage Media Group. Uh, you are correct. Yes. Yeah. I was. I was. I was uh, somehow named Author of the Year in 2015. That's what it was. Author of the Year in 2015. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It. That's that. That's quite an honor from uh, from a a very accomplished publisher who puts out a lot a lot of books a year and and uh, uh, well deserved. Well, so, how did you ever get a Joint Chief of Staff, a, a General? Was he a cousin or relative? I've got an uncle who's a, who's a colonel, a retired colonel in the Air Force. So I'm I'm, I'm real curious about this. How did you get this person to write your forward? That's a, it's a great question. <laughs> and I'm probably not going to give you the answer that you would expect. So just a quick background. My my first career, I spent almost seven years in the Navy as a submarine officer. Got out as a lieutenant. Uh, spent my time on on ballistic missile submarines. And then when when I got out, I had. Uh, uh, my first business that I started with a couple of partners, we placed people coming out of the military into full-time jobs. And that company turned 25 this year. We started in 91, placed over 36,000 veterans into full-time jobs over these past 25 years. That's great. Fast forward to 2001. Uh, I, I read in my local newspaper, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, that General Henry Hugh Shelton, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and head of all, all the military. And by the way, he was he was a chairman from 97 to 2001. So he was sitting chairman on, on 9-11. He was, he was the only plane flying over New York City that day. Wow. So uh, after, he's, after his four years was up, he was, he was required to retire. And NC State University in Raleigh uh, is his alma mater. So they knew that they had a, they had a rare gem uh, one of the nation's greatest leaders, and they 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 asked him if he would be willing to be part of a leadership center and, and with his name attached. So I read uh, the the Shelton Leadership Center is going to is going to is going to start in Raleigh, and I immediately raised my hand and said, "I know General Shelton doesn't know who I am, but I want to be a part of it. What can I do?" And I, I was on some of the initial planning meetings and was lucky enough to be selected for his his board of advisors. He's got you know twenty five other people on that board. Wow. Some pretty high level. There were two people who did not know him, by the way, myself and one of the, one other guy who retired from the board this year at age 95. <laughs> uh, but most of the people, as you would imagine, uh, they knew him they, in, in, in his stellar career. He, he has met a lot of people, impressed a lot of people. And very, very long story short, uh, that, that board started in 2002. Uh, it is now in its 14th year, 2016, and I had the honor of chairing the board in 2014 and 15. Wow. Even though I didn't know him, uh, I can now call him a very good friend, and I, I, I just I love being associated with him because he is, you talk about a leader of leaders and, and being able to learn from somebody, uh, he's a great man to be around, as well as the other board, as well as the other people on the board. That's extremely impressive story by far. And the thing that I really like about that is you didn't know him from anybody and you just raised your hand. How can I help? And through this help, then you became acquainted with him. And next thing you know, he's writing your forward for your book. 
Yeah, you know, I, my, the way I look at leadership is you got to earn your respect, right? You, in the military, we're, there's two things. You're given, you're given. in my case, I was an officer, so you're given your bars. I started as an ensign, so people had to salute me. They had to respect the position, but they didn't have to respect me. I had to earn that respect. And I, I felt that with General Shelton, too. I, I was I was lucky enough to be selected, but over time on the board, uh, I thought my job was to help add to his you know building this thing. I love startups, so it was essentially a startup. So you you, you add value to the board, and eventually you, you get to know get to know the man. And and yeah, in 2014, I was I'm proud to say that, that selected to run the board for two years. Wow, I'm I'm at a loss for words. I, that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> when well, you when you get is. down to it, <laughs> um, you mentioned that you drove a sub submarine. Yes. Wow. So you're not claustrophobic at all. No, <laughs> no. I, I'm one of the few people I think you can relate to this. Uh, back in 1982, I had I had had to choose when when you're in ROTC, you have to choose between being a pilot, a surface warfare officer. And and nuclear, you could go nuclear and go submarine or aircraft carrier. And I I had done well in school, so I I tried to get into nuclear power. But I was an accounting major. There you go. And, you know we're we're, we're alike. Uh, so I I I was able to prove I was able to to sell them that I'd be a good person for their program. So I they they let me in, and after lots of schooling. Uh, and lots of qualifications. I finally got a chance to to get my in the in the uh, air in, in the pilot world. They call it wings. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows Richard Gere and Tom Cruise. In the submarine world, you get your gold dolphins. So when you're qualified as a submariner, you you earn your gold dolphins. And when we when we talk about the book, that's where the whole qualified concept comes from. Because as, as you would want, they didn't let me drive a submarine until I knew what I was doing and I was qualified. You're qualified. So there's, there's a lot going on here. Submarine, accounting, and then you did tell me beforehand you got your degree from Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is one of the stellar accounting programs in the state of Ohio as well as nationally. Uh, you're, you're a submarine driver. You, you get out. And I heard something that you said, I love you know, startups, which, which gravitated you towards helping out the general. So what startups help me there? Well, startups is, is it's the, the environment where every day you have to figure out what's the next thing to do. And in, in the beginning, I guess for, for me, my history from a, from a macro standpoint is I, I've built two companies and I turned one over at, at, at year 12 and I turned the other one over at year 10, because once it gets too operational for me, too steady state, if, if you will, then I, I, I really want to go back and, and, and start something else. Okay. I think that, I think the creation, just the, 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 the energy and, and the creation that goes into starting something new from, from the ground, building it up. I, I, I'm not the startup guy that, that wants to start it. And then a month later, leave it. I start up and build it to 12 years. It, I turn over a pretty good engine when it's turned, when, when it's at 12 years, but then I'm, I'm motivated to go back and start something new. That, that's really neat because you know I, I started my business and and nothing to 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 the capacity that that you have built, but it's almost there's something new every day, and, and, and it's just a ton of fun. You wake up the next day and you you don't know what's coming at you, and and I could see why you if you're that twelve thirteen it becomes a little bit more mature, a little bit more stable. Systems are in place. Let's go back and have some fun. See what we can create from from scratch, and what what can we build. Yeah, I, I I I think to describe it best is the startup world is a lot of uncertainty, 
Uh, whereas my wife, who is, I could not do her job. She's been teaching first grade forever and she's fantastic at it. I, I couldn't, I don't think I have the patience and I, I, I couldn't do what she does so well. Uh, she likes certainty. So every day that, that, that there's that today looks like something that that she's seen before that that's that's what she wants uncertainty no that's not her for me I'm the opposite when it gets to be too certain I look for I thrive in uncertainty and I, and that that's where you have a chance to do the most sometimes well I guess we do have a lot of like because I struggled in a certain corporate America type of structured world where in an uncertain I, I've I haven't. I tell people since 2010 when I went full time, I have not worked a day in my life since that time. Yeah. Ask my wife who loves certainty; he works all the time, right? And, and I don't look at his work. So, with these startups and stuff, is that what triggered writing the book, the second decision? No, I, I, I tell you, I, I'm in. A, I'm in a number of CEO peer groups: uh, Vistage, uh, the Entrepreneur Organization EO. So since '98. I have been around other entrepreneurial CEOs. So we're talking about building our businesses, learning from each other. And having made so many mistakes in my own companies over the years uh, and having, having, uh, looking back when I sold my second business, I I sold it to a very large German firm and and had a, a chance to go build my business out throughout Europe and Asia. So I had a lot of time to sit on planes. And I said, okay, is there, what would I, if, if I could teach anything to anybody, because I, I was able to sell one business and then I was able to sell a second, what would I be able to teach people? That was my, that was really my question. And how it worked was I spent a year putting content together and then I got, got to present to my CEO group. Uh, I actually, I asked my wife to come. It was this big buildup. I said, okay, I, I'm, I'm about to unveil this. I've, I've spent a year putting content together. I got two and a half hours in front of my CEO peers. And when I get done, they get, they had two takeaways for me. They said, Randy, number one, that quite possibly was the worst presentation we have ever heard in our life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 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 Uh, Not what you expected, right? No, no. So what, what I did was because I had put all this content together, I essentially I vomited my content on them for two and a half hours. And until I was I, I was going to get it all out. So I, I wanted to prove to them that, you know, that there was good content. Uh, and the second thing they said is, even though it was the worst presentation, we think there's something here. We think you should go write a book because people need to hear this content. And that's why I wrote a book. I never, I never had a desire to be an author. I never. One lesson I've learned is I've always been pulled rather than push. So when people say, "Listen, you should go do this because of that," I do listen. A couple of years later, I had I had my first book out, uh, but it was it was not the start that I thought it would be. So I just had a curiosity when they said this is the worst presentation ever. You, you and your wife are there. I mean, did you have this really sick feeling in your stomach, or did they say that with with a little bit of, of a twinkle in their eye? You knew the however was coming. Now, even funnier is my wife had gone because she had to get back to school. So when I got home, you know, they told me this because our CEO groups, you know, we we can be very honest with each other, we can be vulnerable. When I got home, she said, "So, how, how did it go? <laughs> how, how did they they think you did?" And I could see, you know, she she wanted to hear from me first, so. 
I told her, well, they said it was the worst presentation they've ever heard. I said, oh, God, thank you. Because I didn't want to have to break that news to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> she said, I'm your wife. I was trying so hard, but I'm thinking, oh, make it end, please. <laughs> so, so basically, the accountant that you came out, and you were just spewing a lot of content. Oh, you know, there's some speakers, because you and I are in that world, obviously. There's some speakers that are no content and, and all uh, motivation and, and you know very little content. And then there's some that are all content. Well, that day I was there. <laughs> it was all content. So I, I got it. I deserve it. But hey, that's what we got to learn, right? Yeah, it's a great learning experience. So the title of the book, The Second Decision, which makes me ask, what's the first decision? So the first decision is when you decide to start your company. and the idea on the napkin, you know, all of a sudden it, it's worked. And imagine yourself at a, at a dinner with one, with your wife or your best friend, and you're 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 giving a toast to the fact that your business is off the ground and running. You've got employees and you got a good future ahead of you. Uh, that's where the second decision comes in. You have to look at yourself and say, "Am I the right person to lead this company for the next three to five years?" Because it's not whether the company works at, the, at this point, it's whether you work right for the company. So the second decision is, number one, do I want to lead this business? And number two, uh, I, I come up, I have five roles that I define in the, in the book. Three of them are qualified and two of them are not qualified. So I go back to my Navy days where I had to be qualified before I ran the business. And as entrepreneurs, we don't have to be qualified to do anything to start a business. We just have to get the certificate, start, and go. All right. So the three roles that, that are qualified are the leader. Uh, and the leader is the person who is that CEO, wants, wants to be the person to lead the company in the future. The role player is a second choice. And that's a person that says, I don't really want to lead. I like, I like sales. I like marketing. Maybe I want to move to a chair, chairman of the board role or something along that line. And the creator is the person who says, I really like to start businesses. I'm I'm the creator. I like I love to get them off the off off the ground. I'm a startup person, uh, but when they get when they get going, eh, it's not really me. Right. And then I have two unqualified roles: a dabbler and status quo. And the dabbler is that entrepreneur that okay, I'll make sure I got cash, but I'm not really that interested in all this other crap I got to learn to run to 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 build a business. I think I, I'm okay. And status quo is I'm happy just where I'm at. So I. The qualified entrepreneur is somebody who is willing to, to get qualified. And, and in the book, I, I, I mirrored what I did in the Navy. Is The Navy, I had a submarine qualification system. I called It, it was the, the qual card. And I created the entrepreneurial qual card in the book and said, if you actually had to sit in front of a board of directors and prove to them you know what you're doing, would you want to and could you? And I was going to make a comment about that because I've read the book and, and transparency. First thing, I read the book. I went, this is great. And two, you've got the, the I guess, baked inside of it, some workbook to help to, to determine if you are that qualified entrepreneur. Now, I call that January in my business because I've got to slate it slated out to now go back through the book in January when I've got time to sit down and look at, I mean, you've got things laid out just ideal in here to help somebody in making that decision. Yeah, and I go back to my Navy days. And the way it worked there was they had all the qualifications that you needed that that you needed to have to have a general understanding of of running that submarine. So that when the captain said you're qualified, you have your gold dolphins, 
that he now trusts you, that you really have a, a feel and an understanding of what's going on. And the way it worked was there were there were lines, there were qualification points, and I had to go in front of an expert. Anytime I wanted to go get checked out on something, so let's say it was the main steam system on a submarine, I would go find the expert, I would go talk to that expert, that expert would ask me question after question after question, and when they thought I knew enough about the main steam system, they would sign my card. And I would do that for the 15 pages of qualification items, and then I would end it with an oral examination, and then another one, and then the final one with the captain. When you think about the second decision book, all I want, all I want leaders and entrepreneurs to do is to go through there, and I want them to be, it's a self-awareness uh, it's a self-awareness issue for me is, is do you really know enough about running your business that you could answer some of these questions? And I built it around the top reasons companies fail or underperform. This is not Randy Nelson's theme of the month or, you know, based because I'm successful as an entrepreneur, I have it all figured out. Uh-uh. These are based around the things that everybody's going to have to know and do for the next 10, 15, 20, 50 years. You have to have cash. You have to understand how you spend your money. You have to you have to know the basics. When you talk about cash, I, I will admit when I'm when I'm reading through the book and you've got three chapters there from the financial perspective. And the one thing that you said you uh you highly recommend the entrepreneurs is every at the beginning of every month, figure out what's your cash flow for the next six months. And I read that and I went, I should be doing that. Because I've shared that with others when I'm speaking uh, along those lines, and I get that same look from them that I had. It's like, duh. Why did I, I, I? That's probably the most important thing I should be doing is looking at that cash flow for the next six, nine months and ensuring I've got enough cash to run the business. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't think that way or thought about that, even an accountant. Yeah, maybe this will help because the numbers, you can get different numbers from different people, but up to 70% of businesses fail, fail because of lack of cash. And and a lot of, I think a lot of times people think I'm going to run out of cash because I'm not successful. It, it's just the opposite too. I'm growing too fast. Right. You know, the, the story, the story that I always tell is January, 2004, I had $650,000 in the bank. I have a credit line of a million dollars that I can tap based on a receivables formula so I can tap 700,000 of that money. So I'm, I have 650,000 in the bank and I have 700,000 more on the credit line. I'm sitting absolutely pretty. Yeah. And I went, to, I went to my two partners and I said, we need to contribute $200,000 a piece by March 1st. And they said, what are you nuts? <laughs> they said, we have, we have $650,000 in the bank. And because this, this, forecasting out the bank balance, I forecasted and I got pretty good at it. Uh, our bank balance was going to be minus 650,000 in June. So we were going to be within 50,000 of tapping out the credit line. Uh, if things went just as I predicted, and you know, in our world, things don't always go that way too. Right. So number one, uh, cash, you got to understand the trends are different than the bank balances. So the trends out looking out six months and you can help, you can, you can make some good decisions before you're forced to make bad decisions when you look out six months. 
I've taken it to heart. I do it on a, I'm now religious with it. And I've made some modifications into my business based off of that six month cash flow model. Cause I forced, I, I saw things that I went, I, I, I think intuitively I, I saw them, but when you see it from a cash perspective in black and white, you really open your eyes. Well, coming, coming from somebody who understands financials like me, I, that's, that's, that's a great thing to hear because if you're not doing it, Imagine somebody who already, like you and I, uh, who, who really were financial people going, dating way back to when we went through school. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who really do not like numbers. A lot of them. Yeah. The, the, and a lot of times in stories that I've got a friend who uh, lost three quarters of a million dollars because his controller went to the Caribbean with his money. And I was playing golf with him a, a couple years pr- uh, before that, and I made the comment, he goes, are you looking at reconciling? Are you just double-checking this stuff? He says, no, I completely con- I trust my controller. He, he's, I've known him for a very long time. And I said, you, you're, you're setting yourself up for something disastrous, potentially. And he just kind of blew me off. And I saw him soon after that happened. And, um, yeah, I, I, I got the, uh, Pete, you are right. I should have paid a little bit more close, close attention. But I'm always looking at that bigger picture. Yeah, it's the number one. Uh, to me, it's the number one. Until I sold my business, it was it was taken away from me. I, I check my bank balance every single day. And then when you get sold to a large uh, strategic company, uh, they sweep the money out. So you can't you're not really in control of your cash anymore because the big company controls it. Uh, number one thing I, I looked at every single day of my life when I was an entrepreneur. And still do, and still do. And still do. And I, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a former banker uh, from back in the day, and I used to lend commercially. And even though I may not have done the six months, I still had my former uh, VP of lending in the back of my head going, cash is king, everything else doesn't count. Cash is the lifeblood of the organization. Net income is not all cash. So I'm not worried about that. I want to see cash flow. I want to see how they're, they're paying that debt service. And marrying that with your six-month plan, that, that, is, that is really, because now it's more, I'm much more visual, but it, it just, it's very striking when you see it. Yeah, six-month six cash is king. That's what I like to say. I, I also want you to, to look at your, your covenants. Uh, from what your lenders are doing out six months, because you might be within the covenants now. And the interesting part was because we put money into the bank, our our lender, our commercial lender, trusted us more. Mm-hmm. Because I shared with them what we were doing and why we were doing it. And your your our, our lender, who was who was a very very great business thinker, uh, he was much more supportive of our business because we were taking a. Uh, we were taking responsibility as well, not just asking the bank to bail us out. And it sounded like you created a partnership with them if you went and shared this information with them, because I know a lot of times the, those who borrow go to the bank uh, asking for forgiveness versus permission. You bet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you one more story about that book for finan- the, the three financial chapters is when, when you write a book and you know this like I do, uh, the final edit cuts a lot of the book out. Yeah, and in my case, I don't know what it was. Forty percent uh, was just you work your heart out. You, work, you, you okay? Here's my here's my baby. You think all your books going to get published, and then the editor cuts out a bunch. Uh, they said we didn't cut out anything of the three financial chapters. We think it's that important, and and that that information needs to be there that we didn't touch it. 
Wow. When I'm speaking, and I speak to lots of CEOs and leaders, uh, I say, if you read one chapter, pick one of the financial chapters, because that gets you thinking. And, and you know, I'm big and I don't know what I don't know uh, philosophy. And I, what I want to do is get some people outside their comfort zone, because this is not real complicated. I'm not asking them to become MBAs. Uh, like you said, all, all we really want to do is get cash forecasted out six months, not just one. Right. I, I think coming from someone who, with your background, who's an entrepreneur, who, who have started, sold, started, sold businesses, and I, I like how you talked about it earlier, you've got some scars, you've had some failures out there as well, but that's all part of growing businesses and being that entrepreneur, and, and throwing the three financial chapters in it, I I, I would assume it's getting people's attention, and I don't see CPA or accountant only in the maybe in the sleeve of it, where it's not you know that bright that maybe they'll listen to you just a tad bit more than maybe their own accountant. Yeah, I, I it I, I think when I point out the uh, the, the metrics of that that's I would say one of the most prominent takeaways from from when I speak to groups is that they've got to improve their metrics. They understand that they're not they're going a little bit too much on their gut mm-hmm. and a little less on the pure data that, that exists inside their business. They may not necessarily love it, but if if when when I go in and coach companies, the very first thing I do is I baseline that company with their metrics. And if I can look on one on one sheet of page, and I can see three to five years worth of history of your your company's metrics. I can see where you're at today and I can see where you're for. We can build a forecast the next three to five years. That is powerful information. I don't need to know anything about your business. Uh, But if I know your numbers, number one, you can't hide from the truth. And your numbers are what they are. Right. So I I would say yes. From a takeaway standpoint, uh, the whole financial area, the whole metric area is something that that I I get their attention. Outside of that. Outside of the financial area, the other pieces of your book, what 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 gets their attention? What makes them, you get that look, you, you see the light bulb go on over the head and their eyes get nice and wide and, and, and the pupils dilate. What, what's, what is that piece in your book outside of the financial pieces? Uh, the general challenge I give to them in the beginning is you know, the growth of a company is limited by the growth of its leader. I, I, it's a self-awareness issue that, uh, for you to ask anybody else to do something, uh, you really have to ask, are you prepared yourself to help them grow as a, as a person? Because we all know as we grow our companies, we have to grow leaders. We have to grow uh, the people below us so that they can take, take on more responsibility. But what I learned, what I learned the hard way, and I use, I used, I used this program called the Birthing of Giants in the book. I, my first decade in business, we grew 50% a year. Wow. We had grown from you know, a handful to over 200 employees. We had grown uh, from nothing to over 20 million. We had grown from one to nine offices. And in 1999, I get accepted into this program called the Birthing of Giants. Now, there's 60 of us, 60 of us entrepreneurs from around the world that are sitting on campus at, MIT, uh, or at, at the MIT Endicott House. At, and, and I'm just ecstatic because I, I've been so successful. And I just, I'm so excited to learn. It's right when the dot-com era was booming. Mm-hmm. And, and quite honestly, I was pretty cocky at that time. Uh, so I, I remember getting into the room and the first, the, first, uh, the first person comes up in there talking about the critical success factors for growth. 
And I'm like, well, I got this stuff. I mean, look at how I've been growing. I, I'm feeling pretty confident. Yeah. And then they start, they start talking and I start taking notes because I don't really know what they're talking about. And then I take more notes and I take more notes. I take more notes. And by the end of that week, I was, it was, I was humbled, embarrassed. I was shocked at how little I knew about really running a business. What I try to get in, in, out to, to the entrepreneurs, the leaders, the CEOs out there is I, it really took somebody showing me how much I didn't know I didn't know. We all know what we know. We all know what we're good at. But until somebody pointed out just how, how much I needed to learn, uh, and from that point on, I committed that, that I was never going to be the leader who asked anybody to do anything I was not doing myself first. And then it just goes from there. And we talk about all the different aspects of uh, the qualification card that I built. But I really am, am pushing uh, leaders for self-awareness on whether they are the right person in that right seat or they're, whether they're a little bit. I, I, it's the combination of self-confidence and self-awareness. If you have both, it's a powerful combo. If it's just the self-confidence beat without the self, self-awareness, it's, it's there's some risks. So listening to what you just described, and you said that you were a little cockier back then. So you, when you're hearing this, you had to really just get past your ego, put your ego aside in order to accept, listen, learn, and grow. Because if you maintain that complete self-confidence and that ego was in the way, do you think it it would have stopped you, wouldn't it? Would you, or would you have gone, I don't know what these guys are talking about. I, 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 I've already got, I already know what the hell I'm doing. I've grown 50%. I would have fought him. And, 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 I, and I, tell, I, I, I tell the story that in my first decade, even after, the, even after the Navy as an entrepreneur, when you're getting success, you know, you're, you're going to feel pretty good about yourself. And, you know, you, take, you have the guts to start a company and then it's successful. You're feeling pretty good. You, you, you feel like nothing can go wrong. And I, I tell people that uh, until I really took the Stephen Cuffey uh, Stephen Covey advice that you don't listen with the intent to reply, you listen with the intent to understand. I was replying a lot because I thought I was right. I, I thought I knew everything and I was just telling people how to do things. I'm a different leader now and I try to get that across to people. Is it, boy, you have a lot of people with, with really, really good opinions and thoughts if you're really open to listening to them. Wow. I actually, I didn't realize that that came from Covey because uh, I use that a lot. We use that a lot in improv. This whole listening to understand, it, it's the, we used to call that active listening back in the day, but we're not in that environment anymore where everybody's just trying to butt in, respond, push their agendas, and it becomes, you know, it's defeating. Yeah, and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial world, leaders in general, I think we, we think sometimes we have to know all the answers. That it's a show, it's a sign of weakness if we don't. And I think once you get past the fact that I, I turn it around. Uh, I, I, I tell, I tell people you don't have to know all the answers. I challenge them to be able to ask really, really tough questions, the right questions, by listening. Because that way, when somebody comes to you, uh, if you can ask them the right questions, then they still have to figure it out for themselves. But you've challenged them and given them the, the direction that they need to go. I think that that's a that's a skill that everybody needs to learn or be self-aware to say, I don't like doing that crap. I want to go back and start businesses and I want to hire somebody else 
to be the leader in my company, which is really the second decision that I ask people to make is if you hate doing all this stuff, if you don't want to learn about all the leadership stuff and you don't want to take all that responsibility, you'd much rather just be in the startup world than go be a creator, but hire a leader behind you. So let's go back to that because the qualified were were the leader, the role player, and the creator. But the one that over on the other side, then qualified, the dabbler. Remind the audience about the dabbler. So if you look at the qual card, the entrepreneurial qual card that I created, if you you had to have all that knowledge to run your company, and again, I can consider general knowledge that you should know. You should know about strategic planning. You should know about... Uh, leadership. You should know about cash. You should know about expenses. You should know about lots of things to run your business. The dabbler says, I know I need to know that stuff, but I'm going to kind of skip six of those pages because I don't really, it doesn't really interest me. I'm not really that interested in numbers. Uh, so I know I probably should know about metrics, but I got cash. I know I got cash. I'm really good at cash. I just choose not to look at that stuff. I, and I'm not really interested in marketing. You know, I know it's important. I know people tell me I should I should try out this Twitter thing and <laughs> understand that, that social media is not going to go away. But ah, <laughs> I'm not that interested. So they dabble. And you know what? What I think a key point uh, that I, that I, I want to bring out is I'm not judging people either. Right. The people the people who make the the decision to become an entrepreneur good for them. It it takes guts to do that. Uh, so I'm not going to say it's wrong to be a dabbler. If your company's successful and you're dabbling, what I am going to do is I'm going to point out two facts. I'm going to point out, number one, that your comp- competition may be led by a qualified entrepreneur, which means they're trying to build that company day in and day out. So you're at risk of falling behind them if you care, if you don't. The, the real numbers that I point out are 50% of all businesses fail within the first five years and 70% fail within the first 10. And business is tough. Yeah, it's, it's easy to get that first sale and maybe to get a couple sales, but to sustain it and build it over time, business is tough. So let's say there's a, a, somebody in the audience who happens to be a dabbler. They've, they've said, okay, that, that's me, but you know what? He, Randy's right. So if if my competition are qualified and I'm over here in the dabbling world, how, how how do I move to the other side? Is it going back? Is it buying your book, going through this process and learning about becoming a qualified entrepreneur, as well as somehow changing that mindset that you have a thirst for knowledge for everything? The first challenge I would give them is what are they telling their employees? Are they challenging their employees to be the best that they can? And they're a dabbler. Because if they are, then as a leader, which is really what what my book is, it's a leadership book. I'm challenging them as a leader then to do the right thing. Because it, yes, you started the company. Yes, you're the entrepreneur. And yes, you're the one who owns the company. But if you're holding everybody accountable below you at being qualified and you're dabbling, I, I got a little problem with that. And I, and, and I think your employees will have a little problem with that over time. If you've told if you have a bunch of employees that, that are dabblers, just like you're a dabbler, and that's, that's okay. What you don't, what I don't want you to do is, is say you're building a great company and say you're doing all the right things, but in fact, you're really not. Cause I had, I had to go through 
One of my biggest learning experiences is, is, is our military recruiting business uh, that helped people. We've got 36,000 veterans. So over, over uh, 25 years, uh, that company has, has done really, really great things. Uh, it was sold to a private equity in 2007. I remained on that board. I remained active. So success story. We've done really, really well. Well, in 9-11, when everyone remembers where they were, our business, our, our supply went away because the military went on stop loss. So people couldn't leave the service and demand went away because the economy went away. So our, our company that I mentioned that had grown 50% a year for, uh, for a decade, uh, I now downsized it by 70%. Wow. So when you look at the book, you know, a lot of these are lessons that, you know, the metrics, if you know your metrics, you can get through any type of, of either ups, upswing or downswing. But in the end, the real key for me is, is the leader making leader decisions and dabbling. Dabbling is great as long as everybody understands that's the expectations. But if you have employees that are relying on you and have tr- put the trust in you, they have families and they have goals. And if, and if the leader's dabbling and they expect that leader to be leading, it's, it's at some point, there's there's a mismatch here. The house of cards will fall apart. The house of cards will fall apart. Yeah. yeah. At some point, yep. At some point, because you're not you're really not walking the talk. You're trying to get everybody else to do it, but you as the leader who's in charge of the business aren't putting in the same effort. It's not going to be sustainable. It's a house of cards. It's a house of cards. And and hopefully 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 it never <laughs> falls. But you know, you look at the Fortune 500 list of the 1980 versus 2010, and uh, not a lot of the same names are on there. So a lot of it has to go with leadership. A lot of it has to go with, with complacency too. We become complacent. Uh, by the way, do you have a BlackBerry on you right now? I have an <laughs> yeah, iPhone. Yeah, but but 15 years ago, you I bet you had a BlackBerry. I did. Yeah. Yeah, but I have an iPhone 5C. I feel like I have still have a BlackBerry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might want to upgrade, but but that's okay. I mean, you're looking at your cash flow, right? You bet. You bet. Uh, so before before we end this, what's what's next on the horizon? Uh, you got another book or two out there? I have. I am writing the third decision. Okay. So the second, the second decision we've talked about, built around the top ten reasons that companies either fail or underperform. Uh, the third decision goes to your per- goes to all of our lives that we have outside of business that we don't talk about a lot, but we lead, which is our personal life. And the book is built around the top uh, reasons, the top regrets that each of us has in our lives. Uh, based on research, based on uh, statistics. And then I, I'm building that into the entrepreneurial world, the leadership world, uh, for how does it, how do we deal with these regrets? And what, again, it's a self-awareness book. Uh, it's, I'm asking people to, uh, especially from a regret standpoint, I always look out three to five years. I don't talk about your legacy for your whole life. I don't want to talk about uh, too far out. I want to go three to five years. What I'm looking at is how can you, how can you avoid some regrets in your life by being more self-aware of the, the, the decisions you make in your personal life? And I'll give you one example. I ask every audience I talk to, what are your personal non-negotiables? And a, and a personal non-negotiable is it's not up for discussion and I'm not willing to compromise. Because 
if you truly have a personal non-negotiable, I'll give you an example for me. It was coaching my boys in baseball when they were seven to 15. It was non-negotiable. It was scheduled. I coached them. I went to the game. I didn't get there 20% of the time, 50% of the time. If somebody has really, really solid non-negotiables, that may actually restrict the growth of their company because they're not willing to grow at 50% clip because all of a sudden they realize there's non-negotiables. So uh, I want people, we all, I think we've all heard when, when we, we have a, a death in the family, we, those are the times when we think, well, I'm going to change. I'm going to learn from this. Nobody does. We all forget <laughs> about it. So I'm, I'm asking some, I'm asking you to, to look at some, uh, like I did in the second decision in the third, I want to, I want to talk to you and, and, and I want to have you say, geez, he's talking to me. And he's asking me some hard questions that, that I really can't avoid answering. So it brings into it brings into account the personal life. I'm I'm excited about it. it's coming along good, and I'm hopefully it's going to be it's going to be out sometime late 2017. 2017. Well, I'm looking forward to coming out because uh, I I will pick that up because that, that'll be a good read. I I would like to because uh, it made me think what are my non negotiables and I need to put a little bit more thought into that. But if if it's anything like the second decision, once again you'll be author of the year. Because it, it does. Now you get that. You get that one next time. Uh, I'm I'm working on it, but I've got I've got some I've got some pretty stiff competition. I'm looking at them square in the eyes right now. Uh, I'll vote for you. Vote for I, I'm for you. <laughs> Please vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Randy, it, it, it's a pleasure talking with you. Uh, the, the book, The Second Decision, The Qualified Entrepreneur, I would highly, highly recommend. It's a must buy. You can be any type of entrepreneur. You may want to think about being an entrepreneur. Do the read. Do the work. Don't be a dabbler. Be qualified. And... Uh, looking forward to the next thank you so very much i'm looking forward to the next time that we can get together and um, chat again me too hopefully it's soon Take care. <laughs> thanks i hope you enjoyed our conversation on the second decision and becoming a qualified entrepreneur this conversation about 70 percent of companies fail because of cash issues and that goes for successful companies because it's not what you have in your bank balance today, but it's about what are those cash trends for the future. That's the golden ticket for every entrepreneur to remember so they can become even more successful. Remember, cash is king. Now, I would highly recommend that all entrepreneurs listening to this podcast purchase Randy's book and read it cover to cover. It's chock full of such great information for us to help our businesses become stronger and sustainable. In reflecting on this interview and making the connection to improvisation, I heard all of the principles of improv when Randy said, the growth of the company is limited by the growth of its leader. Improvisation is all about growth and growing leaders because the very successful leaders possess the yes and philosophy and all of the principles of improvisation. Now, if you're having a hard time making that connection, Go back and listen to episode zero, where I discuss in detail the concept of improvisation. Well, this was a fun and informative interview, and I hope you enjoyed it. I would like to ask you a favor. If you like this episode, would you go on iTunes and write a review? In return for you writing a review, I will send you a free copy of my book. Now, that's a deal. So after you write the review and it posts on iTunes, send me an email at peter at petermargaritas.com with your mailing address, and I will send you a signed copy of my book. 
In episode 33, I interviewed the very funny and talented Greg Kite, who's a CPA and founder of Comedy CPE. So until next time, use your improvisational skills to become a better leader and a better qualified entrepreneur. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.